0: The scripture reading today is from Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 22. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them or they will increase and, in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land." Therefore, they sent taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor they were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them the king of egypt said to the hebrew midwives one of whom was named shifra and the other puah when you act as midwives to the hebrew women and see them on the birth stool if it is a boy kill him but if it is a girl she shall live but the midwives feared god they did not do as the king of egypt commanded them but they let the boys live So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every born boy that is born to the hebrews you shall throw into the nile but you shall let every girl live the word of the lord take a moment now for silent reflection
1: join me in prayer. Great and loving God, we thank you for your word. As confounding and as complicated as these words and these stories can be at times, we ask, oh God, that you would open our hearts. Open our hearts and let the wisdom, the words, the love that you want to pour into our hearts and our lives. May that word be a lamp onto our, our, our feet, just as we have sung about. Give us ears to hear, and give us hearts to receive these words as a gift from your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, it's great to be with you. Um, I think this is my first time preaching on live TV um, and so against better judgment, I want to take some time, just a moment, to say hello to my family watching at home, uh, to my wife, Minsan, and to my boys, uh, Elijah, Zachary, and Josiah. Put away your phones and try to pay attention, okay? Um, the other thing I want to say is we had such a good word last week, and I just kind of want to say can we just play that sermon again? And if you missed it, you ought, you ought to go back and listen to it. Uh, but alas, we have another hard-hitting passage, and I've got to try and do some justice to it, and I would just want to call your attention to uh, a structure here that we're going to try and work through, where, as ancient as this text is, there really is a, a gendered uh, critique that's deeply embedded. As, and as, as modern or as postmodern as it may sound, when we look closely at this text, there is such a disjunction, a contrast between the men and the women. And we're going to get to the, the wisdom of the midwives. Unfortunately, the way to get there, as the text presents the way to us, is. We we can't get to the wisdom of the women apart from going through the foolishness of the men, of Pharaoh. Not just Pharaoh, but of Moses, as we will see as well. You see, the men are blundering failures. And the women, somehow, the women are arise out of the, the rubble that the men create. They arise to create beauty and love, and redemption. So that's the story. That's the story. And we're going to get there. Uh, but you'll have to bear with me. You'll have to bear with the text a little bit. And so out, right up front, I want, to, I want to give to you, present to you in beautiful verse form. We, you have it um, in the front of your worship folders or at the very top of um, the, the mobile worship uh, um, uh, page. Six lines of verse from Gwendolyn Brooks. In her uh, poem, uh, titled Paul Robes- Robeson, um, named after the musician and activist. And I just want to read these six verses for us because they really are uh, uh, verses, six lines, six pithy lines that sum up the wisdom of the women. And it goes like this We are each other's harvest, we are each other's business. We are each other's magnitude and bond. Six lines of verse that sum up the wisdom of the midwives. I ought also to say at the very outset that the series title, at least on the face of it, is not such a great title. Sorry, Fred. I probably should have given you some input on the title at the very outset. But it really isn't because there's something about the title right, that conveys to us what? the patriarchy, the chauvinism. I mean, it's not really impressive, is it, the 10%? Until you realize, and I think here is the, there is wisdom and there is beauty in this title, because I think if we could truly understand the subversive message here, which is, and we're going to see this throughout this text, the 10% is equal to or greater than the rest. There's the wisdom. There is the beauty. And it actually, it really is a good title, if you think of it that way, right? Because there, somehow, somehow, these women who are downtrodden, these women who are on the lowest rung of society, of all the ladders that are created and all the rungs that are created, these women who are at the very bottom somehow manage to rise to the top. It may not be obvious, but upon a closer reading of the text, there is beauty and love and redemption woven through this text because of the work of the of these women. So two paths in the text. There is first the way of Pharaoh, which is the way of fear, and there is the way of the of the midwives, which is the way of love. It is the way of love. Um, but first, the way of Pharaoh. And a great quote from Thomas Pynchon, a novelist, a fiction writer, perhaps one of the. The great uh, writers, living writers of our time. There's a quote in here uh, from, in your worship folders, from the beginning of the introduction to his collection of short stories, and it goes like this It is no secret nowadays, particularly to women, that many American males, even those of middle aged appearance, wearing suits and holding down jobs, are in fact incredible as it sounds. Still small boys inside. Now, I've got to tell you, Pharaoh embodies that quote so well. He is not the sharpest tool in the shed, okay? I mean, how many different ways are there to say this? He is, um, I looked this up, he is not the brightest crayon in the box. (laughs) He is not the smartest cookie in the jar. I mean, Pharaoh is kind of an embarrassing, blundering fool of a leader, And we see this in this text because Pharaoh, as he works through how to face the problem, the conundrum of the Israelites, first, what you see coming out of his mouth are these imaginary fears. You know, because these are people, these Hebrews are people who have been friends historically, who have come to the aid of the Egyptians. But somehow, in his mind, he turns these friends into enemies. And he has um, kind of a long list of hypotheticals. There might be a war. There isn't a war yet, but there might be a war. These people, they might join our enemies. And they might escape. They might leave our land. And so there are these imaginary fears that contribute to you, that construct these, these anxieties, these prejudices. And then there's an escalation. There is an intensification of this contagion of fear that he, that he imposes on these strangers, on these, on these people who are different from his people. And somehow, what begins as, let us deal truly with them, it doesn't sound so bad, right, perhaps. Perhaps there's a way to spin it. Perhaps Pharaoh intends to do good by them. Let us deal shrewdly with these people in verse 9. All of a sudden in verse 12, the Egyptians, we are told, the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. You see how this, this imaginary fear in Pharaoh grows and blossoms and it becomes a contagion to his people where the Egyptians began to dread them. And then in verse 13, they became ruthless in their dealings with these Hebrews. And then, in verse 14, they made their lives bitter. These imaginary fears that lead to an escalation of of prejudices and fear. And then there's miscalculation throughout because what you know, what we know as readers of this text is that it's not really the men who are a threat. But over and over, at least twice in this text, Pharaoh says, let the girls live, but the boys put them to death. And that's a serious miscalculation on Pharaoh's part. At the same time, here's the worst part of it. As bumbling, as blundering a fool as Pharaoh is, it works. It works. He builds Pithom and Ramses, which are we're told in the text today, supply cities. Some translations would say store cities and the King James Version would say treasure cities. Pharaoh, by sheer happenstance of where he was born and who he was in that society, no matter how mediocre, no matter how foolish his tactics and his strategy is, somehow he still manages to prosper. Somehow Because of the happenstance of his birth, because of the color of his skin, because of his ethnic identity, he is able to trample upon as foolish, as miscalculating, as bumbling and blundering a failure as Pharaoh is at actually truly leading his people. It works. He builds treasure cities, Pithom and Ramses, we are told. And we've got to take a step back here and and just think about this. Isn't this the way life so often works? Aren't we surrounded by pharaohs? Aren't we ensnared and seduced by the way of pharaoh? You see, it's easy to critique the pharaoh out there. But what about inside of our hearts? What about the ways in which all of us, no matter who we are, How we are prone to leverage privilege, leverage access, leverage the resources that we have to pursue the way of Pharaoh, to build, store cities in our own lives. In the larger context of the beginning of Exodus, what we realize is it's not just the evil uh, king of the Egyptians But it's also Moses, and we don't have time to get into all of this, but let me just give you a brief rundown of what we get in the opening chapters of the book of Exodus, because Moses is not actually much better than Pharaoh, and this is where the gendered critique comes in. Moses squanders every strategic advantage he has placed on his lap, because Moses is a Hebrew child. Somehow he survives this infanticide, this genocide. Somehow, he finds himself in the very court of Pharaoh himself, raised by the daughter of Pharaoh. But he squanders all of the advantages that are given to him by being allowed to be raised in the court of Pharaoh. He, throw, he gets himself thrown into exile for 40 years. And then when God actually shows up, this happens really quickly. So when God shows up in chapter 3 already... Moses, God shows up in a burning bush and God says, after 40 years, hey Moses, I want to call you back. That plan of redemption that we talked about or that, that you might have thought about 40 years ago, after this mess, this failure that you've made of life and of the circumstances of the people that you so love, I want to call you back. And five times in, verse, in chapters 3 and 4, Moses says, no, no God, I can't do it. I can't do it. Moses has the audacity to beat around the burning bush. Moses Moses does not does not exemplify the kind of leadership, the kind of courage, the kind of strength required by the people of God who are oppressed and trampled down. This reminds me of a time many years ago when we were living in Ann Arbor, Michigan. A friend of ours was visiting, visiting, and um, she she was a friend who grew up in Alaska, and I had the bright idea of making salmon dinner. Or my friend from Alaska and I was on the phone with her I was like, yeah we've got this you know um, uh, the kids will be down for um, uh, having you over and I've uh, got this great salmon recipe and she being very gracious and kind there was a slight pause on the phone and she was like Peter you know I grew up in Alaska and I was slightly miffed slightly taken aback I was like no it's okay I got this I make really good salmon. People love my salmon. Not to mention that most of the people in our lives were college students and graduate students because we were in campus. People basically who eat anything for free, right? And rave about it. And um, and the other thought I had was Costco has really good salmon. You'll like it. And uh, needless to say, she came over and she had an oddly small portion for. You know, I heard dinner, and we had a great time. And the, and the moral of the story is this. You don't know what you don't know. But that fact of life does not have to mean that we go through life recklessly ignorant of our own ignorance. So some, Sometimes it actually helps to have the humility to take a step back and think about what it is that I don't see, what it is that I don't know, What it is that I'm missing in this moment. Which is the mistake that the men in this text, in this story, make over and over and over again. And then, now we get to move on to the way of the the midwives. Because you you see, the way of Pharaoh is all about the projection of power. It's not real power. It's not real wisdom. It's about the projection of power. It's It's about making himself look good. It's about about feeding all the paranoid fears and somehow being able to channel all of that anxious energy into prosperity and power for himself. But the way of the midwives is different. The way of the midwives, and and here it might just help to, to read those six verses again as a kind of refrain for our reflection on this text from Gwendolyn Brooks. In those last six verses of her beautiful poem where she says, We are each other's harvest. We are each other's business. We are each other's magnitude and bond. Do do you know what a harvest is? You know, if you talk, I'm not a farmer, but if if you were to talk to a farmer, a farmer would tell you, that a harvest is not just a thing itself in front of you, but a, when, you, when you reap a harvest, she or he would tell you that there is, there is months, years of planning and working and, and toiling over the land. And a farmer is intimately aware of, his crop, of, of, of her, his crop, and, and she knows the places in the fields where you know it was really a struggle to live, to survive, to bear fruit. A harvest represents all of that. So when Gwendolyn Brooks says, we are each other's harvest, we are each other's business. Now, I can't quite get this right. We need someone with a little more verve and sass and some you know, nodding of body parts to say this. We are each other's business to really truly get this and understand this. But we <clears throat> are each other's business. And then those culminating lines, words, We are each other's magnitude and bond. I believe the midwives understood this profound wisdom. And the courage they muster is so extraordinary because, because in the face of Pharaoh, the greatest, the most powerful person in their universe, a person who was deemed a deity by his people, who was worshipped as a god, Pharaoh comes to them and gives them very clear instructions. And these women have the audacity to say, Pharaoh is out of his mind. There's no way we're doing that. Right? They clap their hands back at him. They say, no way. I like to think they might have uttered a few expletives under their breath. (laughs) Pharaoh is out of his mind. He does not know what he's asking for. There's no way we're doing that. You see, the women have a clarity, an authority, a perspective, a wisdom that Pharaoh lacks. Under enormous, unimaginable pressure, they are clearly outmatched in this setting. They rise to the challenge, and their nonviolent silence speaks volumes. Do you hear their words? Do you hear their wisdom? Do you see the way that they are paving before us? Uh, The scholar of African-American religion, Alexis Wells Ogogome, in her brilliant new book, The Souls of Women Folk, she writes this about... Uh, women slaves. And the book is basically an argument that says it's really overturning the way that we've thought about, historically about slavery in America. And what she's arguing is you can't understand slavery without paying attention to the experiences of women as different from the experiences of men. It's really the most profound and the most obvious thing. But until this book came out just a couple weeks ago, no one had actually thought to excavate the experiences of women to try and understand and flesh out the experience of slavery in America. And this is what she says. Women's decisions not to disclose details of certain traumatic events represented more than a trauma-induced reserve. Intentional forgetting or disremembering was a tool of psychosocial survival. Often it was not... It was not what enslaved people said, but what they chose not to say that revealed what and whom they valued most. Friends, do you realize it's easy to critique the women? It's easy to analyze them. It's especially easy for male commentators to look at this passage and say, yeah, the women were kind of stretching the truth. This is maybe the one place where a white lie is excusable. Or someone might say, oh, it was the providence of God, not the courage of these women, not the gumption of these women, not the moral clarity and vision of these women, but it was the providence of God that allowed these weak women to rise to the occasion. But friends, do you realize the extraordinary strength it must have taken for these women to say in the face of Pharaoh, in the face of Pharaoh's commands to them to say, there's no way we're doing what you're asking us to do. Extraordinary strength. Extraordinary courage and extraordinary vision. In fact, we ought to see God in these women. There are at least four times throughout the Hebrew scriptures where God is likened to midwives. God, you are the one who brought me out of the womb and therefore I praise you and therefore I trust in you and therefore I will follow after you no matter what life brings because you were my midwife who brought me to life, who brought me forth into the light of this world. It is different from the muscular masculinity of Pharaoh. You see, these women set the stage. You might think, well... It wasn't much. They didn't do much. All they did was just allow these babies to live. But what these women do, it allows them to set the stage for all the other women in this text in the opening chapters of the book of Exodus because if we have eyes to see and if we're paying attention, what you would see, what I see in this text is, a, is in, these women represent the vanguard of an elite group of women resistance fighters like Moses' mother and Moses' sister and the daughter of Pharaoh who comes to the rescue and who takes time, who pours out her heart to, to raise this child. And then Zipporah, Zipporah many chapters later when Moses has fled to Midian and has said no to God five times on their way back to Egypt. for It's a very strange incident in, Uh, the Old Testament, where God tries to kill Moses and Zipporah has the wherewithal to to know exactly what to do to save Moses' life in the face of Yahweh's danger and threat. Women time and again. And these midwives are just at the very beginning, at the very vanguard, at the leading edge, and they're going to open up the stage for all these other women to come and to play their respective glorious roles in the story of redemption that unfolds before us, whereas the men are bungling fools who are always trying to draw attention to themselves, hoarding power, consolidating wealth. These women show us a different way That sometimes just showing up and doing the very ordinary thing of doing the very thing that you've done day after day all of your life in the face of Pharaoh's command resisting his foolish words is about the most profound and beautiful thing that you can do. And here's where I want you to see. It's not just extraordinary courage, the very ordinary courage of these midwives. In fact, I think that if they were here, Shifra and Pua. Beautiful names for beautiful women, courageous women. I think if they were here, they would say, It was nothing special. What else could we do? Of course, we would let those boys live. Forget Pharaoh. And a few other choice words directed against Pharaoh at that. Of course, of course, of course. They were just being themselves, doing what, mo- what came most naturally to them. Some of you know what this is like. Because for you, just being who you are is about the most subversive and radical statement a person can make. Just being who you are. Because, because of the kind of world we live in, it's so many phobias and so much hatred and so much cruelty, Just being, I remember when I was in seminary, just marveling at the courage of women, women students in that seminary, in that very conservative seminary where where professors and students were hostile to the very presence of these women aspiring to be spiritual leaders just by virtue of who they were. Queer folks, dear friends, who just by showing up in church Was a radical, you didn't mean for it to be a radical statement of protest and subversion, but just by being who you were and showing up and doing the very ordinary thing of doing you, it was a radical act of civil and spiritual disobedience. Do you see in these women, these very ordinary women, clarity and wisdom and strength, dear friends? Can we marvel together at the beauty, at the redemption that they brought into the world? Let me read these words again as we conclude. These words from Gwendolyn Brooks. And I wonder, you know, can we do this responsively? Okay? If I, could, if I could do the we are each others, and if everything that we are, could you just, I think by now you know it. I think we have it on the screen too. Can you read that, that, that thing responsively? Okay? We are each other's... Artist. We are each other's... Business. We are each other's... Magnitude and bond. What do you think that means? What do you think it means to be someone's magnitude and bond? What do you think the world would look like if the people in this world went around telling each other, you are my magnitude and bond. You are my harvest. You are my business. What would the world look like? For our closing, I have just one more quote, and it's too long to put on the screen here, so I'm going to read it for us. It's from Michelle Zauner's book, Crying in H-Mart. And if you don't know what H-Mart is, it's it's a it's a grocery store. When we were living in Michigan, we would drive five hours to Chicago to go to get to our nearest H Mart, and I used to think that it was just for the groceries, just for the you know the 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 Korean instant noodles and and the snacks that you couldn't get anywhere else. Uh, but I'm coming to realize as I read this book that H Mart was my was the place where my soul could finally be at rest. In a place where I was deemed a foreigner and a stranger and someone who didn't belong. And I love the, the opening lines of Michelle Zauner's book, Now I want to just read it, read it for us as a way to close our time uh, reflecting on this passage. She says this, Ever since my mom died, I cry in H-Mart. H-Mart is a supermarket chain that specializes in Asian food. The H stands for Han Adam." a Korean phrase that roughly translates to one arm full of groceries. H-Mart is where parachute kids flock to find the brand of instant noodles that remind them of home. It's where Korean families buy rice cakes to make ddeokguk, the beef and rice cake soup that brings in the new year. It's the only place where you can find a giant vat of peeled garlic because it's the only place that truly understands how much garlic you'll need for the kind of food your people eat. Small, minor, correct. I think you can get these at Costco now, too, but that's besides the point, okay? They don't prop up goya beans next to bottles of sriracha here. Instead, you'll likely find me crying by the Pantan refrigerators, remembering the taste of my mom's soy sauce eggs and cold radish soup. Or in the freezer section, holding a stack of dumpling skins, thinking of all the hours that mom and I spent at the kitchen table folding minced pork and chives into the thin dough, sobbing near the dry goods, asking myself, am I even Korean anymore if there's no one left to call and ask which brand of seaweed we used to buy? What do you think those words mean? Magnitude and bond? I was thinking about the word bond because I think it's the one, for me anyway, at, at the first many readings the most elusive for me. And I got to thinking about that word bond. It's not just a relationship, you know, a friendship, a kinship, an intimate relationship, but I got to think of it as a glue that holds things together. What would it mean to to see one another as the very bond that holds our, my being together? You see, there are people in your life who when they show up, a part of you comes alive, there are people in your life, when they go away, a part of you dies. I think that's what Gwendolyn Brooks meant when, with that line. We are each other's magnitude and bond. When they're gone, you wonder: are you even you anymore? We are each other's magnitude and bond. This can happen not only when people we love with people we love, but the people we barely know. When you turn away too quickly we forget that we are each other's business, each other's magnitude and bond. When we put guards on horseback to push the refugees away at our borders, we forget that we are each other's magnitude and bond. When we tear down, put down, when we, put our, when we open ourselves, sorry, we, when we put, tear down and put down, we forget we are each other's business. When we remember, when we invite, when we open ourselves up to the stranger, the ones unlike us, the ones that make us shift in our seats, we are each other's magnitude and bond. When we see in the stranger walking past us our magnitude and bond, Then we are on the path of the midwives. We are on the way to acquiring their wisdom. Dear friends, may this be true. May this be true of me. May it be true of you. May it be true of our world because this is what we need. The wisdom of the women. The wisdom of the midwives. Friends, as you go out those doors, as you re-engage life in this world, think about what it means to put yourself on the path, on the way of the midwives. Let us pray. God, we thank you for these women and their strength. We thank you for their courage. We thank you both for the their, their extraordinary display of boldness, but also their, the very ordinary ways in which they rolled up their sleeves and did the work of love and faith and justice. We ask O oh God that their example would become a shining a radiant overflow of love in our own lives. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit who is our midwife who is our mother who is our everything. Amen.